City Limits. Brought to us by the People's Committee for Melbourne every Wednesday at 9am. City Limits is Melbourne's only hour devoted to our urban environment. To transport and planning and housing issues. To privatisations and our utility services. To building and or maintaining a sense of community. 855 on the AM band, if we can hear it through the noise and find it through the smog. City Limits. Here we are, the first day of autumn, and uh, therefore it's the first day, well, it's not therefore the first day of the month, but it happens to be on the first this year. Uh, it's a Wednesday, we're having our house, our, uh, no, housing day, Kevin, be it, don't be an idiot. It's uh, <laughs> transport day, isn't it? That's what it is. And uh, I'm Kevin Healy, we've got Zed Peak with us, and Karina's going to learn at some stage. She's on the way, she rang to say she's running a bit late. And... Um, and it's, well, transport, lots to talk about today on transport. There always is, of course, and uh, lots of other things. Um, is there anything happening in your life at all? But I'll just pour you a cup of tea. You, you, yes, you sort of lay claim to a cup by having a glass yeah. of water in it, so I'll pour in that <laughs> cup. Thanks, There Kevin. we are, a cup of tea. People didn't get it last week because uh, while I was away and the show, uh, I believe, was a repeat, was it not, last week? Yes, <laughs> yeah, it was a there repeat. You're going to have to stand up here, though, unfortunately. There we are. And have you got uh, any brilliant item? Well, yeah, there's an item that's a bit close to my heart. Um, so this what, was... What, going overseas in a week's time or something? <laughs> well, yeah, that's close to my heart as well. But this one's about Mercer. So um, I saw in The Guardian that ASIC has, is suing Mercer Super for allegedly greenwashing fossil fuel and gambling investments. Um, The corporate regulator claims the company misled members in a fund that promoted its sustainable credentials. And just to read a little bit of the article, um, this corporate pension fund Mercer superannuation misled members by investing in coal and other fossil fuels along with alcohol and gambling stocks in a fund that promoted its sustainable credentials. Um, Some of the things it invested in were... um, Whitehaven Coal, BHP, 15 alcohol companies such as Budweiser Brewing and Heineken, and 18 gambling stocks including Crown Resorts and the poker machine maker Aristocrat Leisure. Um, And the reason this is close to my heart is because when I was at Melbourne Uni, it was right in the peak of the fossil-free divestment um, campaign that students were running. And we were trying to get... um, Melbourne Uni to divest its investment portfolio from all fossil fuel investments. Was that in Glyn Davis's time as Vice yes, Chancellor? Yes, it was. Yeah. 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 Um, and basically, things changed slightly, um, but they, the university was not keen at all on actual divestment. And they ended up um, saying that they would assess their fund manager using the consulting firm Mercer. And they did that, and they decided that everything was fine. Right. <laughs> I, I can see a connection here somewhere. <laughs> yeah. So um, basically, oh, it's just frustrating because, yeah, I mean, we knew all along that it was greenwashing. Um, and, you know, like the university has, also has like conflict of interest and vested interest in, in like keeping in – fossil fuel companies good books because 
Um, there's a lot of like funding that comes from them and alumni related things, research related things. So yeah, that was just like, ah, Mercer rises again. <laughs> well, actually, Whiteside, you mentioned Whiteside. I was going to mention say some nice things about them later if we get time, but uh, they announced a record profit this week, so that's good. Oh, I mean, that okay. means that Phew. Mercer's uh, done the right thing, obviously. Uh, <laughs> and Whiteside says it, says it uh, intends to, uh, despite all the climate carry on, it intends to expand its worldwide, portfo- worldwide portfolio in oil and gas and coal and everything else so it's just wonderful Brilliant. isn't it Brilliant. and uh, and it's been forced to negotiate with workers and negotiate with unions that had a the unions had a win in the court because the years they've been resisting any attempt by unions to have bargaining negotiations and uh, they've also been forced to do that poor dears so that it's, yeah it's awful for them yeah I, I just wanted to mention i got a thing in my my water bill yarra valley water Thank you for sharing your feedback, which I didn't actually do, but it doesn't matter. Your ideas have helped us plan for the future. And they say, um, a citizen's jury told us what matters to customers. They make 12 recommendations and are caring for country philosophy for our decisions and actions. And they say, for now, and these are the things they've learned from them, safe and pleasant drinking water, reliable water and sewerage services, timely response and repair, service that meets everyone's needs. Now, I would have thought... They were things they should do anyway. I don't know whether they need feedback to do any of those things. That's, that's what they're there for. Yeah. Uh, but for the future, saving water for the future and looking after our natural environment. So they've put the natural environment in the future. It doesn't matter at the moment, apparently. But again, one might have thought that's what they should be doing. And indeed, when the Melbourne and Melbourne uh, Metropolitan Board of Works ran our water for the whole city instead of these separate uh, corporations... Uh, they, in fact, did look after the environment very strongly, and uh, but, of course, that's a long time ago. Mm. Yeah, uh, or much stronger than I think people now, but it's interesting they see looking after the environment as something down the future. They don't have to do it now, apparently. Uh, yeah. So, yeah mm. <laughs> um, I've got a few more headlines, actually, yeah. if you want to hear um, I saw from Perth now, rooftop solar to be nation's largest energy generator. Um, once um, this coal-fired power station, little power station in New South Wales closes in April, then rooftop solar will officially be the largest en- energy, gerator, the, 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 energy generator in the country. Um, but also I saw in Renew Economy that diesel and agriculture um, have risen so much that they've pushed emissions higher overall despite the falls that have been driven by wind and solar. So you win some, you lose some. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But, yeah, you know, one step forward, two steps back. That's right. And, of course, in the meantime, there's all the greenwashing that goes on, Um, as you mentioned. Uh, Just interesting, last um, Friday's um, Herald Sun, let's give the Herald Sun its weekly first um, <laughs> last Friday because they now run sections where they tell people how to save money and all that because they care about poor battlers who are struggling and they're on the side of the battlers who are struggling against greedy capitalists like Rupert Murdoch is the you know the last person to you know to be a greedy capitalist of course because he's, he's such a nice bloke um, but last Friday they had a front page about how the the government is taking your money off you and they're really going strong on this superannuation business where, you know, the 
it's 0.5% or five, yeah, I think it's 0.5%, isn't it? The population will have to pay up and not till, not till 19, not till 2025 anyway. That's the bit that should start next. We should, should start two years ago, in fact. Um, these people get, you know, ripping off with millions in their accounts. But then they had this front page about the government ripping off your money is our honey or something the government says. And then you go to, and they talk about greedy capitalists and inflating inflation. On page eight, they had a headline, Greedy Businesses Driving Inflation, which was all very good, except when you turn to page two the same day, there was an announcement that as of Monday, Lord Rupert's own own media papers, all his his empire, were increasing their cost by their, their charges by 12%. Mm. <laughs> um, <clears throat> that, that's not a greedy business driving inflation. That's just apparently probably greedy workers forcing him to do it, I suppose. That's something, whatever. But anyway, uh, I found that an interesting little piece of uh, contradiction. But, you know, you never, never accused Rupert Murdoch of being hypocritical, would you? <laughs> <laughs> never. They're also very upset about, because we know they're big on law and order, particularly putting anyone in jail who uh, they don't like. Um, And the state is talking about reducing the age of um, criminal responsibility above 10. And, you know, at the moment, 10-year-olds can go to jail. And they've carried on. On on Monday, the Herald Sun had this story, child crims to walk free. Isn't that disgusting? Mm. Young thugs to get kid glove treatment. Hundreds of children aged under 14 were arrested in a year for high-level crimes and et cetera, et cetera. And it's shocking that these kids aren't going to be charged because they're regarded as being children, which perhaps someone should remind the Herald Sun they actually are. Yeah. And they use the word child, which would indicate they're children. Oh, that's so demonising. One would think there's other ways of addressing those problems than uh, locking up kids. Yeah. Maybe maybe have a look at the cause, all those sort of things. Uh, another interesting uh, little legal fight going on. Um, the Catholic Church ha- is taking up, is gone to the High Court to appeal over um, child sex abuse and um, and its responsibilities. And uh, a woman who was 14 when she was assaulted in 1968 by a priest, and they're saying that we should have, we are beyond a certain time, um, they shouldn't have to pay and the, you know, the whole responsibility should, 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 should stop at a certain point. And uh, they've gone to the High Court to argue that so that they won't be held responsible and have to pay up, etc., for this woman. So it's interesting to see that they, despite all their claims that they're you know, addressing the problem, etc., they're, they're still attempting to um, stop people getting compensation for being sexually molested. Which is, uh, I find interesting, and an item that, uh, there was an item on this morning's Bricky show, and uh, people who've heard it will know what I'm talking about, I won't go into detail about an interview, but it, it related in part at least to the fact that the Adelaide Festival um, has lost a, I think most people are aware of this by now, but has lost uh, one of the biggest law firms, Minter Ellison, as a sponsor, um, because it has two Palestinian writers and um, the Zionist lobby um, led by um, Jeremy Liebler, who's with the law firm Arnold Blockleber, and he's president of the Zionist Federation of Australia, he urged them he, he, to, um, to uh, 
to boycott it, and they have. They've they've stood. They've withdrawn their total support for the festival uh, because there's two Palestinian writers. It comes down back to the point, of course, that as long as you criticise Israel in any sense, you're regarded as anti-Semitic, uh, even yeah. though even though the uh, the two people who are speaking are both Semite people, of course, but. Uh, it's only anti-Semitic if you attack Israel, and uh, and oh, it's, it's it's pretty re- awful. Yeah, it's really yeah. insidious propaganda. That, um, you know, being Jewish myself, like uh, I oh. I feel like I also have a responsibility to say, like everyone, calm down. Like if you <laughs> <laughs> if you think that what Israel is doing is wrong, that doesn't make you anti-Semitic at all. No, no, that's right. And, uh, well, yeah, like you, there were so many Jewish people who, who have, uh, well, Karl Marx was a Jew for the worst place, you know, he goes, oh, he's, but I mean, that's right. I mean, you attack Zionism you, and that's the point. You, It's the Zionists who you're attacking and they're the ones who unfortunately uh, control the agenda on those things, yeah. Mm-hmm. But hopefully things will start looking up. I think, the, I think there are signs that in the world people are becoming more and more aware of the sort of oppression that Palestinian people are suffering. So let's, yeah. hope, let's hope. Anyway, uh, the, again, um, the uh, good old Herald Sun or the Murdoch Empire, uh, as we've talked a few times about the fact that there's a real war mentality going on and people building up and, you know, we've got to spend trillions on defence and on these weapons that kill people and on the merchants of death. And the and recently, one of the Murdoch, um, the fabulous the fabulous Murdoch uh, Sky News ran an exclusive investigation uh, urging people to watch it. And the advertising for it was, China may attack Taiwan at any time, the Taiwan foreign minister. The world is much more fragile now. That's Richard Miles, the Minister for Defence, and as I said, is almost making the Liberals look like Quakers. Um, we must prepare for the worst case. The late Jim Molan, former Senator and Major General, whose you know, sole role in life was war, war, war. And they had Peter Stavanovich investigates, are we ready for war tonight, 7.30, etc., etc. And um, to back it up, <coughs> an ad in the paper in the last couple of days Victoria is manufacturing a new future for the defence industry. So here we have our state government here in Victoria saying we want more and more investment on killing people. Victoria is the home of innovation, delivering complex defence platforms, military equipment and services for Australian Defence Force and international customers. Vital defence, etc. to see defence excellence. Victoria, as we said, Victoria defence excellence, it says in the ad by the Victorian government. And a, um, a separate story, a major global defence conference will be hosted in Melbourne from 2024 in a move expected to add 65 mil to the economy. Industry and Innovation Minister Ben Carroll will announce the Melbourne Convention and Exhibition Centre as the home for the event known as Land Forces International Land Defence Exposition. Well, these have been uh, targeted by protesters a number of times and there's been a lot of violence by coppers against the protesters who protest about killing people. The three-day conference showcasing military technology is the biggest of its kind in the Asia-Pacific. It typically attracts 800 companies and is visited by delegations from 30 countries. It will provide a boost for Victorian defence sectors with armoured vehicles such as Thales, Bushmaster mode in the, are made in the state and Hanwar's self-propelled howitzer will also start production soon. Wee, isn't that wonderful? Mm. Um, so more and more about killing people. Yeah, I wonder, 
You know, if we, instead of, like, every time people say defence, if we said fighting and killing, and every or time off, we said military, we said killing people. Like, train killing. Yeah. And, and instead of defence, offence. Offensive. Yeah. yeah. That's what it is. Yeah. Just an interesting aside, on, the, um, on this move to um, at least increase the tax a bit on the on the super rich with their superannuation which they're all screaming about um the interesting headline in last friday's financial review the front page headline teals hit back at three million super cap because for all their their good you know their good policies on environment etc they also do represent the super rich the seats they're in are the seats of the filthy rich and uh so they're defending their constituency by saying the government shouldn't tax the filthy rich and save millions that might go to uh, we might consider slightly better uh, projects, such as uh, education and health and transport today, and all those things. But uh, no, 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 no. <laughs> another another one this week, of course, that uh, is shocking news because people. When I was away with some people last week, um, uh, we were. Obviously, at nights, particularly after a few drinks, we were <laughs> discussing politics fairly strongly, and we all believed at that stage we thought the duck season was going to get dropped the way it was running. But unfortunately, the government's now said it will go ahead, so it's pretty dreadful. I think it's more dreadful for the poor bloody ducks, but it's pretty, yeah. It's, and uh, to call it sport is just unbelievably ridiculous. I would have thought, yeah. Anyway, that's that. But a couple of before we go to John, just a couple of um, a couple of really serious points, um, and we can discuss this on the next housing day, and maybe try and find somebody to help him. But it turns out that uh, poor Prince Andrew, Randy, Andy, the bloke who got into trouble and is still in trouble, um, may have to leave his royal lodge. He um, can't afford the maintenance, and uh, and it's only a thirty-room mansion. Um, <laughs> um, with lots of, you know, it's got only eight acres of land, a swimming pool, all that sort of stuff, but needs repair and he can't afford it. And he's, he's hoping his, his dad can help out a bit, but dad seems a bit reluctant. And um, But two other, but two really good news on that front, and I think this is lovely. Uh, you're pleased to know that Camilla will wear Queen Mary's crown at Charlie's coronation. Isn't that beautiful? Um, <laughs> and, yeah, no, but she did say... The move was being made in the interests of sustainability and efficiency, but then it says the crown will be reset with several Cohen diamonds cut from what was the largest diamond ever mined when it was discovered in South Africa in 1905 in tribute to the late Queen Elizabeth II. So I would have thought resetting it with several Cohen, Cohen and diamonds is an interesting expression of sustainability and efficiency. Mm. Um, but also her kids, her, no, her grandkids, she's got, I didn't know she had any grandkids, but she's got Her teenage grandchildren will play a central role. Uh, they'll, they'll carry the, um, the, the, this thing that's going to be draped over her, the canopy over her as she is anointed with holy oil. So she'll get anointed with holy oil as well. Um, during the most sacred part of the ceremony, uh, normally someone else apparently does that, but she wants her grandkids to do it. And that should make it very beautiful. I think we all look forward to it, don't we, enormously? Mm, yeah, it would be uh, great you, to you, send me into a nice nap. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> it, it, when's it on? You're, in, you're going to England next week. What, how long? You, 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 I'll be there for a month, so... Oh, I don't hmm. know when it's on. It doesn't say, Oh, May 6th. Are you going to be there on May 6th? No, you won't be no, back no, by then. No, I'll be back here What a by pity then. for you. <laughs> 
<laughs> oh, bad luck. Good luck is we'll, get, we'll stop all this rubbish <laughs> and get John McPherson, our regular commentator on transport on the line, and uh, talk some sense. Stay tuned in to 3CR Community Radio. Tune in to 3CR's annual International Women's Day broadcast. 24 hours of women and non-binary news, views and music on Wednesday the 8th of March. We want to celebrate the resistance, talent, strengths and power of women and genderqueer living here in the Kulin Nation and of those living, fighting and creating change all over so-called Australia and the world. This International Women's Day celebration is a celebration of feminism that knows that liberation from gender depression can never be achieved without dismantling all systems of domination and subjugation. From midnight Sunday the 7th of March until midnight on Monday the 8th of March, we'll bring you 24 hours of radio by women and non-binary presenters, producers and musicians. For details, go to 3cr.org.au forward slash IWD 2023. Okay, and on the line we've got John McPherson, who's um, our regular commentator on transport, of course. John, I thought I'd kick off by saying a couple of weeks ago, two weeks ago today, in fact, I was heading up Geelong Road with some people. Yeah. uh, And... Uh, and just you know, we went on it that long. When I noticed on the inside lane, there was a, there was it was just bumper to bumper going nowhere, um, and it must have gone for two or three kilometres. And I kept thinking, why are people sitting in that lane and not out here where we're moving? And when we got to the top of it, it turned out it was a turn off to I think Point Cook or Labbott, and I think Point Cook. And I thought, God, if people do that every day, and this isn't even peak, this is lunchtime, uh, and it must happen coming the other way. Um, it's just, it's a nightmare, and I know that's something you wanted to talk about today. Yeah, yeah. Um, I might just put you on speaker, Kevin. I'm not sure. I'm getting a bit of an echo. Right. So hold on a moment. Don't know. How does that sound? Is that bearable? I think it's bearable. Yeah, Should we just so. we'll go for it for a while, and then if if it sounds strange, we can switch back. But, yeah, I think it's working. Okay, great. Yeah, um, Point Cook's a, a classic in terms of um, um, so-called modern planning, of course. It's a fairly new suburb out, out there south of Werribee. And it's, um, you know, it's been built with um, the usual minimal road, road provision uh, and no public transport. And so everybody... You know, every adult has to pretty much have a car, and um, you know, surprise, surprise, the road the road systems don't don't manage, um, and there's no other alternative. So, I mean, that's pretty much sums it up. So, all those people backing up on the inside lane of the freeway are uh, are just desperately trying to get home, and uh, that's what they're offered in way of um, transport facilities in Melbourne. Yeah. I know when April Bragg used to come in here to do the uh, housing program for the Housing with Aged Action Group, she used to come into the studio in those days. Um, she lives at Hoppers Crossing, and I know she'd yeah. often have to take leave home two or three hours early to get here because uh, the same problem, just getting onto the onto the freeway. Yeah, 
Yeah, well, there's people in those sort of areas talk about, well, you know, there's a headline that the ABC News had that earlier in the week, an hour and a half to drive three kilometres to take their child to, to a local school. This was in, this was up in the Wallen direction, you know, out very out of suburbs. Mm. Uh, but, you know, the traffic was so bad and and the limited road, road capacity meant that, you know, they just, they just never knew how long it would take take them to get their kid to school and then get maybe get back to back to where they lived and of course the distances are often too great even if you could safely send the kid off on a bike the distances are really too great to um to, to do it that way i mean it's it's, it's they're in an incredible double bind uh, where they assume they're going to get you know 20th 21st century facilities when they buy a new house in a new suburb and they get something like early you know, 100 years before, the facilities are 100 years before. Yeah, I mean, even our, our friend, the Herald Sun, came into this one this week or so ago. It had a it had an editorial, West Needs Action on Plans, and it made the point, perhaps the best illustration of that failure to plan and future-proof for such instrumental, instrumental growth is the fact that 70% of Wyndham's 300,000 residents work outside the municipality and most spend an hour each way each weekday to commute for employment. That time spent slowly navigating clogged roads and freeways to work or accessing patchy public transport equates to four weeks wasted each year, according to Wyndham councillor Josh Gilligan. Um, and it goes on to say um, population growth has outstripped civic infrastructure across Melbourne's west. And it make, goes on about the points we're making, but it's just uh, even the Herald Sun's picked it up. Well, well the, same, the same sort of thing really happens in every direction on the outer suburbs of Melbourne, but I think probably the north and the west are the worst because that's where there's the least historical public transport in terms of you know rail lines and... Um, and uh, bus routes, and and when when completely new areas of farmland have been um, turned into huge, huge um, cities like Wyndham, the the absolute minimum amount of bus networks have been put in, and then and then they never get improved in the Melbourne. The Melbourne model seems to be to put in the minimum and never improve it, so so that people people expect you know a decent standard of say even buses to get them to the train but um, it doesn't happen and nothing happens <laughs> so 20 years later it's still the same I mean it, it, or even more it just it's just extraordinarily extraordinarily bad and the politicians never apparently feel under enough pressure to improve things and, um, and every election they promise it's coming oh yeah of course of course yes but they never provide the money and they never they never let the you know even if the department wants to do more the department of transport they never let let do that by their political masters because the only money that will be spent will be the money that the politicians see as having the most obvious um political payback uh, at the next election and that's not always the thing that's needed most that's the you know the political payback is quite a different thing to the um the you know the real needs of um as we're often told ordinary people you know well, uh, you'll recall, John, when we had a group called PEST, People for Environmentally Sustainable Transport, all those years ago, we had three students on placement who uh, 
to undertook a, a survey of public transport in Melton, which <laughs> was not hardly any. Um, but I mean, the report was devastating as to a lack of, and and nothing really has changed. And that was well over mm. twenty years ago. It's a long time ago. I now. think in Melton, it's got a little bit better. Um, but of course, Melton's one of those strange places where the the um, the centre of Melton is quite a you know a kilometre or two north of the railway station. So it's 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 badly you know it was badly organised from the absolute get go. Mm. So the, so the buses that get you to the to the the shopping centre certainly don't get you to the railway station. You know that was that that's an awkward thing they've got to deal with. And of course you know being Melbourne they deal with it very badly. Uh, it, it, it's 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 so generic the issues that it's you know that it's you hardly need to go into the local issues, you know, because the generic overall badness is so comprehensive, you know, <laughs> and and things get fiddled with. This is, we're still talking about buses here. Things, things get fiddled with and buses get maybe adjusted and sent, sent around another, another loop to try and to try and give some sort of a service to some sort of an outer suburb. But in the end, the buses become so indirect that, that it's the, the the trip is a nightmare even just to get to the railway station, and of course you know this is not even talking about the frequency. And it's, and of course it's still not electric quite either. And... No, no. Well, at least it's got double track out to Milton now, and that's oh, beaut. <laughs> Partly that, of course, that's because it, that also benefits oh, the train that trains that go on to to Ballarat. But it's certainly a good thing. But why on earth? The whole thing wasn't electrified at the same time as they were as they were digging everything up and putting in the second track. I have no idea, mm. but it didn't happen. The last, I think, the, well, there is a bit of electrification going on. Not sorry, second track tracking going on on the Hurstbridge line. A little yeah, I was bit. going to raise that later, but didn't go on it now. If you want to, yeah, yeah. Well, just to mention, that's good. It's happening, and, and the stations are being re- rebuilt. And I think there might be a new station going in on the line. Um, and indeed, they're saying there'll be a, you know, there'll be up to, in peak at least there'll be a seven minute service in some parts and mm. yeah yeah well you can assume that that'll be a seven minute service over half an hour yeah that's right you know, it won't, you know they they every <laughs> time they announce things they announce them the sound as best as possible but you've got to then read them like a lawyer read the uh, press releases like a lawyer to actually find out what's actually going on. So, yeah, that'll be nice. There'll be a train every seven minutes um, during possibly a half an hour, an hour. Uh, but then everything will fall back to the um, every 20 minutes. But even there at the extremes of the line, they say they'll get a 20-minute service. Well, yeah. they, they've got a worse one now. Yeah, 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 they have, yes. Yeah, I think that's, it, that's right. It only goes out there every second train or every third yeah, train. Yeah, so, the second, so they're, they're putting in uh, a couple more passing loops and things like that which can improve things a little bit. But all these things, are, you know, the, the improvements are usually so incremental. You know, nothing gets done, nothing gets done properly. Mm. Uh, those western suburbs, though, they, they were the biggest swings. Those seats were the biggest swings against Labor in the election. They were massive swings, but mm. because they had such huge majorities in the first place, yeah. they didn't lose them. But surely it's a wake-up call to do something about it. Well, you would think so. I mean, it, you, you would think that next election the um, the Liberals should be um, really hammering 
hammering that area and making some cast-iron promises about improving improving rail and bus services and, you know, improving by radical amounts because at the moment they're so pitiful. So the other thing is, of course, if the buses get caught in the, in the uh, road traffic, uh, the buses aren't given any, even much in the way of priority. So every time they, they're trying to approach a, a congested intersection where you wait three or four changes of the traffic lights to get through, the buses, the buses waiting along with the ind- cars with individual people in them, you know. Mm. It, it's quite, you know, it's quite possible to organise things so the buses can go around the worst of the traffic jams if you, again, if you really care. Well, it's like trams along some of the suburban shopping strips that are caught in the same situation. Yeah, yeah, fascinating, fascinating article in the Age a couple of days ago from a from a, a guy, a Melbourne guy who now lives in Berlin called Tim Foster, and he came back to Melbourne and he'd been reading about the wonderful um, improvements to public transport that Andrews had been making, and he thought, oh yes, Melbourne's now got public transport at a European standard. Well, of course, he he came back and and discovered no. <laughs> he was quite deluded if he thought Melbourne had had European-type public transport uh, because um, the uh, the um, selling of the uh, selling of the of the future was 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 uh, really quite um, oh, what should we say not not exactly um, truthful in the way the, the press releases sold things in Melbourne. So he discovered that um, maybe things on the uh, rail lines weren't too bad in the peak hour. But outside peak hour, or say in the evenings or even in the middle of the day or at the weekends, the frequencies of trains and and buses and even trams were nothing like what he was used to in Europe. And even found that, of course, services didn't run. So you might have a tram running every 20 minutes because it's um, halfway through the evening and suddenly one tram didn't turn up. Things like that, you know. All, all, All the sort of things that he thought he could rely on the public transport system. When he came home to Melbourne, he wouldn't need a car. He'd be fine in public transport. No, he discovered it was shambolic. And to improve things, like, how much do you think is, do we need, like, complex mathematical models to, um, you know, consider, like, the traffic over here and, um, you know, like, what the optimum nodes are blah, 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 and, like, you know, things that will affect the whole system, and how much is it just, like, no, we just need to plonk, like, this many more buses, yeah. like, and, and just increase the services, and actually, like, we don't we don't need to do that much, like, complex calculations to figure that out. Yeah, yeah, I think, you, I think you've got a good point there. So, um, the, the complexity is... <laughs> The complexity really is at the level where the, the the authorities that provide these services don't want to spend the money, basically. So they they spend an awful lot of time trying to squeeze a little bit more out of the limited money that they allocate for public transport. But they basically have to grit their teeth and decide that they are going to spend quite a lot more money on public transport if they want a usable system. Uh, which, uh, as cities get bigger and bigger, uh, you know, they simply have to, and we're going to be a very big city. What, five five million people, is it, in 10, 15 years? Yeah, yeah, they're talking. That's a very big city. Yeah, 
Yeah. And you cannot go on with the half-hearted sort of shambles that we have at the moment. Um, basically, you need a, a system that has frequency uh, and um, you know reliability, and so the trains and buses and trams can all meet each other at, at suitable nodes. And of course, the nodes are really dictated a lot by what you've got historically from the past. And you cannot rely on just going on, say, with bus services that have been there for 50 years and say, well, that's all you need, because it just isn't all you need, because things have got more dense and suburbs have expanded far further out. And, you know, it's only some of the train lines that have 10-minute services off-peak, and not many. And all the train lines should have off-peak services every 10 minutes. Mm. And so should... You know, so should the, certainly the important bus routes and all the tram routes. Well, I mentioned the group we had pest over 20 years ago, but much longer than 20 years, John, we've been arguing about modal yeah. interchanges that you're saying now, where, yeah. they, where one, they're frequent and they come in and they meet each other so you can, tra- you can, you can change from one form to another immediately rather than have to wait another 20 minutes on a bus stop or something um, yeah, yeah. when you get off the train yeah. or the tram. The whole of Switzerland is coordinated the way, you know, the way a good city should be coordinated. They coordinate the whole country so that you come into hubs on, say, your local bus and you know that there will be trains leaving that station in the next 10 minutes going in all the directions that trains can take you, things like that. And then you get to the other end of your train trip and you know the buses will be waiting to take you locally. Those sort of things can be done on the on on the basis of the whole country, and we have we have we can't be bothered to organise Melbourne so it works on a citywide basis. It's um, you know it, it it seems that from the politicians' point of view, it's too hard to put the pressure on the bureaucrats and the operators to make these things happen. They'd much rather use the money on big fancy, um, you know, capital works projects, the sort of thing that they can put butte photographs on the front page of the, the Herald Sun. Mm-hmm. Like, the, um, you know, we're doing all the level crossing elimination works, and that's, you know, really good. But whether whether they should be doing all the level crossings that they're doing is, is a question, seeing it costs $250 million roundabout to do each one of those. And they want to do about, I think it's 80 level crossings. So that's an awful lot of money. That's $20 billion. Yeah. Uh, well, yeah. level... and, and, you know, the state has huge, huge um, debts. You know, we are the, the most deeply indebted state. Well, cynics would say what they promised to um, put crossings at all the, all the crossings along in Brunswick. Yeah. Uh, because they were trying to win the seat back from the Greens, which they yeah. didn't anyway in the state election. Yeah. But uh, uh, Union Street near where I am, and I ride my bike out there regularly, um, when the gates are down, there's hardly ever a car waiting, but there's a sign-up saying this is one of the congested yeah. crossings we're going to be, et cetera, et cetera, and it's one of those signs on every crossing. Yeah. Many of the roads have very little traffic at all. Yeah, well, yeah, you do wonder. You do wonder. They won't really uh, um, admit to the criteria they use for deciding which crossings are going to be fixed. It, often, it doesn't look like they're the most important crossings. <laughs> well, they, like, so they, 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 they've they've actually gone to court to fight. 
They've gone that to one. court to fight um, people trying to find out their their justification for the yeah. for the crossings. Yeah. 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 It's all. It's all. It's all kept kept hidden, and I think it's kept hidden because really the decision making process is um, highly political. Yeah. Look, uh, I hate uh, to bring this program down a tone, John. Oh, yeah, I'm going to do something. <laughs> I'm going to do something very ordinary at the moment. Um, last week, I was talking to a woman who was down from Queensland for a few weeks, yeah. and she's got problems walking, and she uses a walking frame mostly. But she came into Southern Cross on a bus to catch a train to Geelong, and she talked about the way that the staff and travellers aid helped her, and was absolutely full of praise for the way she was helped. I even bought something around to, to take her, take her along, you know, some little buggy thing. And when she got to the train, they told the conductor, and then the conductor forwarded to Geelong to have something ready for her, and got her to yep. the bus to go to Torquay where she was going. Yep. Um, and she was absolutely full of praise for the people who worked on the system and the travellers' aid at, at Southern Cross. There you are. Well, I'm really, I'm extremely pleased pleased to hear that. Yes, travellers' aid has been a um, has been important for people with disabilities or people who are elderly for a long time. Uh, and as long as you know about it, they can be very helpful. But you know, they're, they're, they're tucked away and they're not very well advertised. I have to say, but she's she's lucky. She she struck the right people on the right day. And congratulations to Travellers Aid. Yeah, well, I think I think the the staff there alerted Travellers Aid, and they came on. Yeah. But anyway, well, whatever it was, I've got to say I, I ran into someone who was full of praise for our public transport system, which yeah, I, well, yeah. I know. <laughs> which you know, there you are. <laughs> well, I hope they got her up and down the escalators and around, you know, roundabout because it can be quite, you know, there's some very long escalators at Southern Southern Cross, uh, and uh, I'm very pleased she was looked after. I guess there are lifts down onto the, onto the platform, so that's great. Yeah. Yep. Just on that, by the way, we did talk about it last month, the fact that yeah. the contract's coming up, but uh, see, one one afternoon well, since our last program, Mikey packed up completely and uh, people got a free ride all afternoon. Yeah, and some people got charged the um, the fare to the end of the line. And, and found it extremely difficult to get a refund. Oh, did they? I didn't see that. I, I saw yeah. one bloke saying it was wonderful. He got a free trip. He thought he should break that every yeah. day, but yeah. Well, there were people who were quite concerned because they couldn't touch off at the other end of their trip that they would end up getting charged oh, for a trip. I see, of course. Yeah. I don't yeah. know if that yeah. actually ended up happening, but that was certainly that was certainly a possibility. And yeah. Mikey, again, is so, so shambolic, and it's been persisted with by this you know this government mainly for so long, and yet it's known to be so so poor. You, you again, you just wonder what you know what the <laughs> what is the motivation behind the scenes. Um, Sydney has already converted over to just tapping your um, your card as you go through the gate, and that'll and I think you tap on the way out as well, and that way you'll you'll be charged the right the right fare for your trip. Uh, I believe Brisbane's already also converting to that sort of system, so you no longer have to have a specialised card to travel on to travel on public transport. Well, roughly this time next week, of course, they will be doing that in the London Underground, I assume. Yeah, yeah. yeah we look forward to some tales of um, tales of the of the UK transport system. Is that, yep. Yeah. Um... 
I'm I'm slightly dreading it because I have heard that it's very expensive, um, or that the tube is very expensive, and then the buses are a bit more affordable, but they do yep. such circuitous routes that it takes a lot longer than catching the tube. But yeah, I think that's I think you've got a ra- I think that's right. You you might be able to investigate finding special say student passes and things like that. Yeah, I will investigate while I'm there, and I'll give you the lowdown. <laughs> so the, I think quite often in the UK system, if you if you investigate a bit further, you can find there are cheaper cheaper fares, even for travelling outside London too. You know, you can find cheaper fares if you buy your ticket ahead of time and things like that. Because mm, okay. uh, if you turn up and, tr- and travel, say you know going to Birmingham or somewhere like that. The fares are, you know, eye-wateringly high. But if you buy a, buy something a few days before, often that's quite a lot cheaper. Yeah. The other no, good p- luck. Good luck. But they've got a very uh, um, chopped-up system with lots and lots of operators who are allowed to charge their own their own fares. So it's it's pretty confusing when you first come across it. I gather. Well, thank you. Thank you for the... <laughs> You've got six weeks to learn. Too. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I know. I don't know whether it's still the case, but a few years ago it was still possible to buy a, a rail pass that would put... You know, you could use across a lot, a lot of the UK, and that was a lot, that was a lot cheaper than, um, than buying tickets on, on, you know, when you're there. But I don't know whether they still exist, but they did back then. Oh, okay. Good to that know. That was great because you just walk through the ticket barrier and wave the wave the thing at the um, at, at, you know the, the the attendant who was who was um, you know supervising and they just waved you through. Yeah. Yeah, I went good. all over Italy years ago on an Intel Rail Pass and it was quite magnificent actually. And just yeah, yeah go yeah. wherever you want to, when you, whenever you want to. But often those things you, you can't buy them in country. You've got to buy them before you yeah, before you go. Now, but, but anyhow, we. We certainly had one. Um, yeah, oh, John, yeah, yeah. I know you wanted to talk yes. also today about, um, and it's a problem we talk about many, many times, but the there's been articles recently about the incidence of illness and death caused by yep. exhaust, by pollution, and particularly pollution from vehicles. Yeah. Um, yeah, so it was, uh, again, the ABC News um, site was highlighting um, an, an elderly gentleman who lived who'd lived in the house for 30 years alongside the ever-widening um, um, Westgate Freeway out, out in um, Brooklyn, you know, on the way to, on the way to Geelong. Mm. And um, he lived behind a large barrier wall to reduce the noise a bit from the freeway. But uh, he had to clean the outside of his house very often because of the amount of gunk from... Um, from exhaust, from mainly from large trucks. It would have been mainly from large trucks uh, exhaust, but it also would have been part of particulate matter coming off tyres of vehicles as well. And um, he'd only recently discovered that there was a monitor for uh, air pollution gone in quite close to where he lived. But then when he tried to get some information about what the monitor was showing, that was, um, that was sealed up tight like the Kremlin. He couldn't. Um, he couldn't find out that information, however hard he tried. So that's. I mean, you know, that's that's pitiful, really, when the when the organisations um, that um, you know are supposed to look after us don't don't 
feel I have to, you know, put information out there in the public domain. So he campaigned quite hard to get that information and hadn't been able to get it. And probably he would have been told, oh, no, these readings don't represent what you're experiencing. And yet the uh, monitor was, you know, basically just down the street from where his house was. Um, it's recently become apparent from studies that far more people die from air pollution based on roads than die in road crashes each year. Well, there was a, in 2019, there was an estimate that 49% more people died from vehicle pollution yeah. than from than the national road toll, yeah. Yeah, well, there you go. This, this, you know, this sort of stuff is, is extraordinary. Um, we have a very old truck, truck fleet in Australia. The average age, I think, is something like 17 years old. Now, the newer trucks don't spew as much muck out the exhaust pipes. But the older trucks tend to be the ones that are used for short trips around the city, um, not on the long distance trips because they're because they're less efficient. Of course, they're 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 recycled to the shorter trips, so they're the ones spewing spewing the the muck into the air. Um, uh, and then people will say, oh, yeah, well, trucks are going to go electric. Look, Elon Musk's got a big electric truck. Yeah, that'll happen very slowly. And certainly in Australia, there won't be much in the way of support to make that happen fast. And if the average age of trucks at the moment is 17 years, it's going to take an awfully long time for all those trucks to be converted to electric, which would be very nice, of course. But it'll take an awfully long time. Mm. So... What what we're supposed to do about this, I don't know. You can can speed up the, you know, the change over to um, two more modern trucks, but um, you know, will it happen? No, no government so far has been very interested in doing that. Well, also because we we've mentioned again many times that this our standards for um, pollution. Yep. Yep. Air quality standards in terms of vehicles are, are very low compared to the rest of the world. Um, very, yep. very low, very low in terms of being worse than the rest of the world, not lower yep. than. Um, and about a decade, decade yeah, behind. And and governments continually say they do something about it, but the the lobby seems to be so strong from that industry that uh, nothing really happens. That's right. That's right. And I notice the, I mean, the trucking interests are quite cheerfully will admit that the average age of the fleet is 17 years and that the, uh, the oldest trucks are the ones that are used in the city. They're quite, they quite cheerfully say that, <laughs> which I find extraordinary that, uh, that they are so open about it. Uh, yeah, it's, it's an extraordinary situation. Um, the, um, the transport sector seems to be very, very slowly getting round to, to um, providing shuttle train services to the port of Melbourne so containers can be taken to the port by train from, um, from special depots on the edge of the city. There seems, the idea seems to be to put one to the southeast, one to the north and one to the west, and that will take some of the short-distance trucks off the road leading to the port but you know we'll have to wait and see what sort of a difference that makes 
Um, but of course, there'll be no compulsion about any of this. It'll all be um, it'll all be done on the basis of voluntary, you know, voluntary changes. Well, there was also an article recently about the um, more than a thousand cases of dangerously fatigued truck drivers were detected on Victorian roads last year, and mm. also that you know many many trucks were uh, unroadworthy effectively. Uh, And and the union claims that um, employers had pressured one in four truck drivers to work beyond legal hours and skip breaks and and told to falsify their working hours, but also that many of the trucks had real problems like brakes and everything else. So that's... There's an interesting thing. Victoria, for some reason, takes very little interest in, in routinely checking trucks as they travel up and down the highways. All those stations that you see on the on the on the motorways that you know are supposed to be able to weigh trucks and check and check their uh, reliability and their um, you know whether they've got all their all the equipment works those sort of things are never open as far as I can tell uh, we, we've, we're extraordinarily relaxed about all that stuff. New South Wales takes far more uh, interest in keeping their trucks running at legal speeds and having all the equipment work. But, yeah, it's so often the case in Victoria you discover the brakes are faulty. Drivers drivers are, are driving, you know, very fatigued. Um, there was a there was an accident on the Western Freeway, um, well, quite a few months ago now, where, I, where a, um, a bus was carrying school children towards the airport quite early in the morning. And as I understand it, it got the bus got run into from the rear by a semi trailer coming from Adelaide, and the bus was pushed down down a steep slope, and um, you know people were injured, but fortunately nobody was killed. But that you know would look prima facie as if it must have been. This is around about four a.m. in the morning. Must have been something to do with the driver being very fatigued, mm. and uh, you know you. You know, you wonder you wonder about all these things. Are drivers under any control or supervision, or are they just left left to um, um, you know behave like you know just just do whatever they have to do to to um, you know make their money? It seems like they're under incredible pressure. Well, the Transport Workers Union used the term untrammeled, say probably Kevin, untrammeled commercial pressure. Um, Yeah. I think we know that for years again that um, these companies put pressure on drivers to, uh, which means they they really have to drive beyond the the legal limits to to achieve the end result. Yeah, well, one of the large um, freight operators who, who carry a lot of refrigerated goods went into receivership earlier in the week and the uh, unions blamed that on the fact that they were, this, this company was being squeezed by the um, supermarkets that to was provide Scots, cheaper and cheaper rates. That's Scotch refrigeration people. That's right, yeah. yeah. That, that seems to me to be a pretty prima facie, that's what's going on. And, um, um, you know, that means that, that, that the, um, you know, the... the well, with the pressure being put by the supermarkets back on their supplies and the transport operators is such that, um, you know, things have got to a ridiculous point. And, of course, it, the transport operators are having great trouble finding drivers as well. Um, you know, so it's, so it's, um, it's a really... 
it's a very bad situation, uh, which the government really has to get back involved in, I think, in terms of, you know, proper supervision from government agencies rather than this all this very relaxed, um, oh, you can do it your way. Yes, we'll kill a few more people, but, gee, the prices in the supermarket will be two cents cheaper. You know, it's not... It's not um, it's not. It's not. It's not sensible. But ne- these things are never linked up. I don't think. I hope you're not being critical, John, of our great supermarket duopoly. Um. <laughs> I think I am, Kevin. <laughs> oh dear. <laughs> oh dear. Yeah. yeah. So you're bring all that rubbish to the supermarket shelves. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Well, you know, and of course, there's, there's the old issue, the, the long-term issue of long-distance freight. Of course, far more it should be on rail than is at the moment. But once again, no no government is prepared to um, apply some leverage that would cause that to happen. Um, you know, they'll, they'll st- still build more roads, you know, and spend a minimum on upgrading rail. Upgrading rail. And um, so, of course, the, the freight doesn't transfer back to rail. And also the aforementioned level crossing removals, all they do, of course, is make make traffic move faster so it encourages people to stay on the road, really. Yeah, well, that's, that's um, the, the extent to which they've taken the, the level crossing removal indicates to me it's very much a, uh, about winning elections, not about improving, improving the overall um, welfare of society, shall we say. Oh, dear, John, <laughs> on that cynical note, we're going to have to finish because it's 9.59, we've got to go. Joe's in the next studio. And, uh, but, John, thanks for your time. We'll talk to you next month. Okay, Zeb, have a great trip. Thank okay, you. and I'll be back, Zeb, in two weeks because next week um, is the 8th, so it's International Women's Day. and uh, Yeah, so we'll be kicking you out again. I'm out. Yep, and we'll have a very special time um, with Meg Kimber back um, for a little rock star interview. I look forward to that, and I'll wake up next Wednesday and think, isn't it wonderful I can roll over and go back to sleep? <laughs> You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.